Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 119 for the week ending, September 6, 2018, the Heading to Boston edition. As the Texans head to Boston for the NFL season opener and the Astros head to Boston for a three-game series, which is in reality a preview of the American League Championship Series, Jay Rosen and I, Mr. Monitors, are back with a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. But first, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent integrity monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. So what do we take a look at this week? Well, there was a Santa Fe FCPA settlement, two large whistleblower awards from the SEC, Take a look at an article by Jonathan Marks on the whistleblower triage system and why you need one. Three senior executives from Telia, including the former CEO, go on trial in Sweden for paying bribes in Uzbekistan. We talk about more thoughts and reactions on the Hoskins case. We look at the ING money laundering settlement with Dutch authorities for $900 million and the attendant anti-piling-on declination by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, The U.K. High Court restores the attorney-client privilege in internal investigations, always important in a a corruption investigation. Matt Kelly joins us for a three-pronged discussion of anonymous reporting based upon the uh, New York Times op-ed piece, which came out earlier this week. We take a look at an article asking whether the Freedom of Information Act applies to FCPA and other monitorships. We end with... A discussion of my upcoming Compliance Masterclass training, the Converge 2018 event in Denver in early October, and of course, a discussion about the Astros and the Red Sox. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, a Compliance Evangelist, back again for This Week in FCPA, episode 119. For the week ending September 6, 2018, the Heading to Boston edition. As always, I'm going to bring it on. Uh, as yes, well known Homer, uh, Mr. Uh, I don't know what you call Mr. Potato Head for Boston, but that's Jay <laughs> Rosen who uh, masquerades as Mr. Monitor when he's not Uber Homer Red Sox Patriots Celtics fan. And this it's- weekend, we have just a great Boston Houston series. First of all, the Texans are heading up to go oh, uh, to extend their 0 for 9 in the Brady uh, era record against the um, Patriots uh, by going 0 for 10. Uh, with, uh, we will note that uh, the uh, Patriots are seven-point favorites. Uh, 56 uh, on the line, Jay. I'm going for the over. I'm thinking the Patriots are going to win big on this one. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. We are a little bit thin at wide receiver. And some of our running backs are a bit nicked up, but I think um, 
We've made some uh, progress on the defensive side of the ball, and if we can keep uh, Watson contained, we should be okay. However, that's only a small part of the sports weekend as the Astros roll into Fenway looking to sweep the Boston Red Sox. Uh, I think this is a preview of the uh, ALCS, Jay, uh, but whether it is or isn't, I think it's going to be three great games of baseball. Hopefully fall will be in the air. It'll be a little bit cooler at night. Uh, it's the um, uh, Major League game of the uh, of the weekend on Sunday night on ESPN. So uh, are you uh, as a little more reticent about uh, your Red Sox? Or are you uh, still feeling good? Um, I'm, I'm feeling good. Uh, the, the one thing is, is it's important that you do not limp into the playoffs. And there's no doubt about the fact that they're making it. But uh, there have been some blips uh, in the starting rotation, uh, some injuries. And uh, we'll see if... Uh, uh, if our first-year manager, Cora, is able to keep everyone healthy and get them to the playoffs without a disappointment like we had against Cleveland last year. So uh, it was, a lot, it was against was Houston. Sorry, against Houston. Yeah. But I, I don't think it was a disappointment. Uh, the Astros, it was their year, and they were firing on all cylinders. And, um, you know, that's what we got to see. Uh, that's why we're playing the games this weekend, right? Right. So, uh, so it's going to be fun. Definitely going to be fun. Uh, we opened the NFL season last night with just an absolutely abysmal game. Uh, but uh, Philadelphia did win. Jonathan Marks reported in uh, from the stadium, a one-hour rain delay. So uh, congratulations to Philly and uh, Super Bowl MVP Nick Foles for winning game one. But, uh, Jay, we had just a heck of a week in the FCPA compliance and ethics world, so maybe we ought to just jump right into this. Big uh, big settlement, too, to start the week. Uh, Sanofi, the pharmaceutical, French pharmaceutical giant, uh, agreed to pay $25.2 million to resolve uh, SEC allegations that its subsidiaries made bribery payments. <clears throat> the, um, the company generated funds for the illicit payments through fake expenses improperly recorded on the company's books and records. We should note that the Department of Justice had previously uh, ended its years-long investigation into FCPA violations. So this is the classic uh, books and records uh, violation. And also a scheme was used uh, by Sanofi's distributors in Kazakhstan uh, as part of a kickback from which officials were paid to ensure that uh, the company received tenders at public institutions. Kickbacks were tracked in an internal spreadsheet and coded as marzipans. Um, by, uh, by the company. And I guess uh, sometimes you should just remind people if you're going to engage in bribery and corruption, do not document, document, document. Your thoughts, Jay? Um, as Inspector Renault said to Rick, gambling in Casablanca? I'm shocked. Payoffs in the medical field? Well, that could never happen. But uh, uh, two, two juicy quotes here from Charles Kane, head of the SEC. He said uh, regarding bribery, in connection with pharmaceutical sales, bribery remains a significant problem despite numerous prior enforcement actions involving the industry and life sciences more generally. He cautioned that more work, quote, needs to be done to address the particular risks posed in the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, this has been something that uh, has uh, been popping up 
uh, over the last few years. Uh, we went from the uh, scandal with uh, travel vouchers and attending conferences. So this is uh, something that uh, global pharmaceutical companies still unfortunately um, are plagued with because if they want to grow their sales outside the U.S., they uh, from time to time seem to be dealing with people who may or may not have connections to the government. So not surprising. And uh, I guess when you think about it, 25 million, uh, it could be a lot worse, right? That it could, that it could. Um, oh, and uh, we linked in the show notes to reports from Dick Casson in the FCPA blog and Sam Rubenfield in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Uh, next up, uh, we had uh, two very large SEC whistleblower awards. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so we're, uh, we got this from our friend and uh, uh, fellow conspirator or cohort who will be joining us in a bit, Matt Kelly. He covered this in Radical Compliance. And uh, the SEC doled out another huge whistleblower award on Thursday, this time splitting $54 million between two whistleblowers in a case that had some very uh, special circumstances. Uh, the first recipient claimant, number one, received $39 million, the second largest award ever that the SEC has given. Um, that said, the SEC denied claimant one even more money because he had already been seeking another award from a second agency. And claimant number two received $15 million, even though that person didn't approach the SEC with information until after another agency interviewed him first, another departure from the typical whistleblower practice. So this is, um, I guess this is the first course, but what is being considered now or Matt talks about uh, that they are considering, the SEC is considering capping all awards at $30 million. And typically the awards run anywhere between 10 and 30% of whatever mon monetary settlement there was. So if 54 was given out, Matt and his handy dandy calculator had figured out that the sanction could uh, range anywhere from 180 million to 540 million dollars. So what's going to be at stake now is um, whether or not these uh, awards can be capped at 30 million dollars. And Matt notes that the Senate is uh, did confirm Elad Roisman this week to be the fifth member of the uh, uh, whistleblower commission. And at this point, this would give SEC Chairman. Jay Clayton, a re Republican majority again. So we'll have to see if anything moves forward on that. Uh, Tom, your thoughts on whistleblower awards and the capping of them? So it seems to me that this is really a fool's errand uh, to cap whistleblower awards. The amount of money recovered by the SEC and uh, the amount of good it does, I think, far outweighs uh, obviously uh, paying people a lot of money, but they're not being paid a lot of money unless they deliver a superior results. So uh, I think this is just a way for uh, corporations to try to cut down on, uh, or even the SEC to cut down on the amount they're paying out. It's certainly not going to impact, I think, the uh, quality of uh, tips that come in, but uh, there's really no reason for the SEC to, to cut down these awards. Um, and obviously the program's working. You mentioned our good friend, Jonathan Marks, who was in the stands in Philadelphia last night. Uh, Jonathan uh, wants to contemplate whether or not you have a whistleblower triage system. What are his thoughts there, Tom? So uh, if you don't subscribe to Jonathan Marks' uh, uh, board and fraud blog, you really should. 
Uh, it is just an excellent uh, uh, resource. Uh, Jonathan goes literally into the weeds on topics. This one is no different. Um, my only complaint for with Jonathan is he doesn't post enough. Uh, and this one is really a triage system from start to finish, starting with the whistleblower uh, all the way through to uh, um, literally the SEC if it goes that way. But hopefully, um, uh, because of the information he's put in here, he will uh, help you understand uh, what you need to do in terms of your um, your internal whistleblowing uh, process or triage, as he calls it. And he, he is I've heard him talk several times about the triage process. And the, and the critical first step is staging the allegation in the right place so that it gets the right people for um quick review and he lays out how to do that he lays out the steps uh, i would uh, urge you to uh, take a look at it of course we would link to it in the show notes and and once again as with literally everything jonathan posts it's a fabulous resource for the compliance practitioner for the uh, fraud examiner for the internal auditor for a wide variety of persons so uh next up uh we're getting something from radio free europe and we're talking about uh, the telecom industry and issues in Uzbekistan. Uh, that sounds familiar. And uh, three former execs from telecom giant. Do we say Telia or Tilia? Well, uh, I, as the Texan in the group, I say Tilia. I say Tilia. Tilia have gone on trial in Sweden and a high-profile bribery case involving the eldest daughter of the late Uzbek president, Islam Karimov. Uh, former chief exec Lars Nyberg and two other defendants, defendants are suspected of paying $350 million, I got all the words here, to Golnara Karimov in return for mobile phone licenses in Uzbekistan and for the protection of the government. The trio was charged in September last year after the Stockholm-based company agreed to pay nearly a billion dollars in penalties to help settle the years-long corruption probe. So um, basically, uh, as we said before, uh, they are not the only players to have issues in Uzbekistan. There was a huge settlement with Vimplecom uh, in February 2017 for $795 million. So uh, <clears throat> we still... Uh, are, are seeing uh, corruption cases coming out of there and um, probably expecting uh, similar results with this one. So, Jay, I would just add that uh, it's extraordinarily unusual when a former CEO uh, goes under um, into trial, and that's what we have in this case. So it points up a couple of different things for me. One is that uh, prosecutors literally across the globe are looking at the actions of senior management. And if you do engage in bribery and corruption, you could be uh, subjecting yourself to literally to jail time. Uh, the second thing is that it's Sweden doing this prosecution, not the United States. These are Swedish citizens. And of course, I think that had something to do with it. But it also points to the uh, a really global international prosecution network that was, uh, uh, if not created, but certainly fostered by the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission. I'm sure there was a sharing of information here between the U.S. and Sweden, and having Sweden prosecute these individuals, I think, is a huge step forward in the in the global fight against corrupt. So next up, we have um, a few articles that we're going to look at, and it's uh, uh, more reaction on the recent uh, Hoskins matters. We've uh, looked at an article by Matthew Stevenson in his excellent global anti-corruption blog, 
blog. Also, John Rush, who explores the decision and dipping through geometries. And then, as usual, we also um, you're going to write about this on Monday with an interview with uh, Laura Perkins, formerly of the DOJ. So, uh, Tom, I'm going to ask you to put your lawyer hat on. Uh, what are some of the takeaways that you uh, have from uh, the recent United States versus Hoskins decision? So, the really, the consensus seems to be that, uh, although this is uh, significant because the Court of Appeals made this decision, its impact will really be uh, very minimal. Uh, it's a very small subset of cases uh, that would fall under this because this is not companies, Jace, this is individuals. And Laura Perkins told me, Laura's a former fraud section DOJ, or so she you know, knows this stuff uh, before she went into private practice at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. If there is no jurisdiction over a corporation, uh, that's not the declination under the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. That's just simply uh, there's no jurisdiction. And she said that companies come in and and have made those arguments, uh, uh, some persuasively to the department when she was there, and that uh, a company is not going to be sanctioned or punished uh, by the department uh, for making an argument that there's no jurisdiction over the transaction at issue. Uh, It will come into play, uh, obviously, with individuals, but both uh, Professor Stevenson and uh, John Rush really make clear that not all of the avenues for individual prosecution are prescribed by this. Uh, we still have the uh, agent uh, conspiracy theory of culpability. Uh, is Was Hoskin an agent of the U.S. company? And then uh, uh, Rush, Rush points out another theory, which is not addressed, the causation theory of culpability. Uh, Matthew Stevenson, uh, I thought, took a little bit broader look, as, as he normally does uh, in his um, – Global Anti-Corruption blog, because it's subtitled Law, Science, and Law, Social Science and Policy. And really, on a policy basis, he talks about whether or not or how this interplays with the Yates memo, how this interplays with uh, people like Jesse Eisenberg and others who criticize the department for not uh, prosecuting individuals uh, when uh, there's going to be uh, corporate liability for actions uh, but perhaps not individual liability because there's no jurisdiction. Uh, and as we learned in the uh, <clears throat> Telia matter, a company um, can still, or excuse me, the uh, Department of Justice can still refer information out to prosecutors. So uh, the Department of Justice could have sent information to uh, prosecutors in either uh, Paris, where I think Mr. Hoskins was um domiciled, or in Indonesia, where uh, he engaged in, uh, allegedly engaged in bribery and corruption. We should note that Alstom uh, is under a deferred prosecution agreement for these matters. So uh, there's still a variety of tools open to the Department of Justice, and Laura Perkins also made clear that there's a number of other statutes that have different jurisdictional underpinnings. So she pointed to money laundering uh, as one way which uh, Mr. Hoskins uh, possibly could have been uh, prosecuted, or others who violate the FCPA. So uh, the consensus seems to be that although this was a court of appeals decision, uh, it is so narrowly limited to the facts, it's really not going to provide cover for uh, corporations um, because uh, if it was uh, a situation where there was no jurisdiction previously, um, there's going to be no jurisdiction now, and that jurisdiction will uh, prevent the Department of Justice uh, from going forward. So uh, interesting uh, commentary and uh, 
Laura's uh, thoughts actually are going to be on a podcast. I'm not going to blog about it, or at least I hadn't planned to do, uh, although perhaps you've inspired me to. So uh, it's interesting to see see this, and certainly it's, it's going to be something that we uh, continue to look at, Jay, because Hoskins still has to go to trial, and the Department of Justice still ha- or the, I should say the Department of Justice has to make a decision on whether to take him to trial. So that's still an open issue. So it, w- it would be fair to say that the uh, the good old Chamber of Commerce won't be jumping on the Hoskins bandwagon and trying to uh, use that to inflict some damage against the FCPA um, uh, prosecution here in the U.S. Uh, to quote Inspector uh, Renault, precisément. <laughs> All right. Next up, we have um, another uh, settlement covered both by Harry Kasson in the FCPA blog and your colleague Jacqueline Jager over at Compliance Week. And the facts are that the SEC just closed its investigation into ING Group NV one day after the banking giant reached a settlement. Um, As previously noted, in connection with the investigation, ING also received information requests from the U.S. Security Exchange Commission. In that letter, the Division of Enforcement states that based on information, it does not intend to go forward. So this is more in the line with the uh, recent piling on thing that um, Dutch uh, public prosecutors say that uh, ING will pay 675 million euros, which is... $782 $782 million and disgorge 100 million euros, $115 million to resolve criminal investigations. The SEC declination is consistent with the Fed's new piling on pro- policy. Uh, Jacqueline goes a little bit more uh, in depth into this as she does with most of her writings. And she said um, the public prosecution services investigation uncovered several compliance risk management shortcomings, and I'll touch a few on a few of them. ING Netherlands had incomplete or missing customer due diligence files that failed to exit business relationships in a timely manner. They incorrectly assigned risk classifications that failed to have CDD review order on the customer due diligence, and they failed to have post-transaction monitoring. So uh, there were several violations here along the way, but uh, it looks like this one has been cleaned up right now. Uh, Tom, any thoughts uh, on this one? Uh, Jay, the only thing I would really uh, want to emphasize is what you started with, the uh, declination issued by the uh, SEC. And that was clearly as a result of the anti-piling on policy. The anti-piling on policy speaks directly to uh, U.S. agencies, uh, other departments within the U.S. government. But here we have that same courtesy extended literally across the pond over to the Netherlands. And I think it shows um, a continuation of what uh, Kara Brockmeyer and Dan Kahn started talking about uh, several years ago, the one pie policy. And I think this is something that uh, corporations should be applauding and should be uh, cognizant of. So uh, anti-piling on comes into play one more time. So uh, now we have another, um, I guess, uh, issue in front of the, the court about how to um, deal with uh, anti-corruption investigations. And this time uh, we are on the other side of the pond and uh, we're going to look at the Court of Appeal in London as they overturned the high court judgment in SFO versus ENRC. And this comes to us uh 
We are friends at Gibson Dunn with an excellent client alert. Tom, what are your takeaways from this one? So this involved the London-based Eurasian Natural Resources uh, Corporation, and they uh, were or are involved in an anti-corruption investigation. And the issue uh, was that the lower court, which nominally named the high court, had ruled that uh, the company had to turn over the notes taken by uh, external lawyers uh, in uh, their investigation for the company. Uh, the, they were doing an investigation under uh, what we all thought was an attorney-client privilege directed by an attorney. And the Court of Appeals, Appeals found that all interviews conducted by ENRC's external lawyers were covered by the litigation privilege, as, as was the work conducted by the forensic accountants in connections with the books and records review. Um, so these were all finding fact-finding exercises conducted at a time when the criminal prosecution was in reasonable contemplation and undertaken for the dominant purpose of resisting or avoiding prosecution. Uh, for anyone who believes in the attorney-client privilege, this is a decision to be applauded. Uh, the uh, high court in England had really opened up a wedge to a door that we uh, had not seen open in, in uh, I think, since about 1300, as Jonathan Armstrong informed us uh, in the most recent uh, episode of Everything Compliance um, about this decision. So um, it's it's significant decision. Anyone involved in a uh, uh, corruption investigation, which will have UK jurisdiction, which for an energy company would be almost everyone, uh, it's uh, an important decision. The <clears throat> write-up by the Gibson Dunn team, including Pat Stokes, is, is excellent. I commend you to that. There's a shorter summary by Harry Casson in the FCPA blog, and they both link to the full court decision if you want to geek out, as I did, and, and read the decision. So an important decision in the investigative world and an important uh, decision protecting the attorney-client privilege. So, Jay, now uh, anonymously, we have an anonymous guest who's going to anonymously talk about the issue of anonymous whistleblowing. But we're not going to anonymously talk about it uh, in the context of an anonymous corporation. We're going to talk about it in the context of the White House. And the now uh, rather well-known New York Times op-ed piece uh, detailing uh, actions that are going on in the White House. So uh, should, uh, should, should our guest remain anonymous or would he like to disclose who he is so that we can fully evaluate the backgrounds of, of his comments? Well, hello, gentlemen. As much as I would like to uh, just identify myself as Butch calling in from Cape Cod, um, I think I will just publicly identify myself. So uh, once again, it is me, Matt Kelly from Radical Compliance. Always a pleasure to have a uh, guest appearance with you guys uh, from time to time. So um, yeah, this anonymous op-ed that ran in the New York Times, I think on Thursday morning, written by some senior executive in the Trump administration, basically confirming all of our worst suspicions and fears about President Trump caused a lot of uh, consternation in the political and probably social classes and conversations around the country. I had mixed feelings about this whole letter and the anonymity around it, because I think as people and citizens, a lot of us would probably read that and think, and this was my first thought when I read it, is like, this, this guy, and I believe it's a man, is uh, kind of a coward because clearly he knows that there are serious problems 
in the administration, and he is you know, basically admitting it all, saying, I'm trying to figure out how to make it work from the inside, but I'm not going to tell you who I am, and it's a real mess, and good luck, America. And that's not very helpful. And a lot of us have probably had bad bosses in the past. I certainly have, where I've had to go to senior executives and say, this manager here is a severe problem. And you don't have any anonymity. Some Then, you know, I did not. And, you know, you, a lot of us, when they're in the situations, have to get our backbone up, speak the truth, suffer the consequences. More than one occasion when I did that, it resulted in me getting sacked from my job rather than uh, people addressing the problem. And that's the natural response a lot of people have. And then what annoys me even more is that compliance professionals, we talk all the time about supporting anonymous whistleblowing, and that's kind of what this is. So we have to grit our teeth and thank this person, whoever he is, for his generous service in confirming for us that it's a train wreck in the White House and then not really telling us anything more. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that – for compliance executives thinking about this, at what point is an executive in such a senior leadership position that there is this extra standard or duty where you really should put your name out there? And if you're an elected official, if you're a senior public official, this person is on the t payroll of the taxpayers. His employer is not President Trump. His employer is the American people. At what point does that person have a duty to come forward from anonymity and tell his employer the manager you hired is a total train wreck um, and kind of kick that out into the fairway so people can come to terms with it. And the last parting thought that I have is somebody described it, I think, spot on is what this person is really doing is enabling the bad behavior of somebody who is just a, a complete mess. And anybody who maybe has had like an alcoholic in their family and they've seen enablers supporting them or other people in trouble the best way to get them to solve their problems is to confront them or hit rock bottom and enabling them to function. That's not doing it. And that's what this anonymous person is is doing, is enabling. And I thought that was a really good point that uh, people were raising along those lines. So they, make no mistake, this anonymous report frustrates me to no end. But I think for compliance officers, we have to respect the fact that this is part of the an anonymous whistleblowing we like to talk about. That's what this is, and we have to support this even when it stinks and then try and figure out what to do with it. So, Matt, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, and uh, as I understand it, you're developing some of your ideas for a blog post. I'm very much looking forward uh, to that. But I've really come down, uh, at least preliminarily, on the following. The reasons that we ask for and, in fact, demand anonymity in the workplace are to largely to prevent retaliation. Uh, yep. At the time these were developed, uh, anonymous wh uh, whistleblower hotlines were developed. It, it was feared that uh, companies would retaliate against those, and I think there was uh, fear was based on on a real pattern and practice within uh, multiple industries. But in the political world, I think the calculation is different, and I think the calculation uh, is not uh, you don't have anonymity to prevent retaliation. Uh, you have anonymity so that a person's uh, – the way co the conversations have 
devolve now. It's not about what you say. It's about who you are, who you voted for, who you gave money to, where you went to school, uh, perhaps uh, the, now the shoes you wear, uh, if not uh, uh, the vape tool you use. And so the, the, the considerations for anonymity within the political context, I think, are, are sufficiently different than those in the corporate context or around uh, corporate whistleblower hotlines that I think it's fair to have a different conversation. Uh, or if I could spin it, it you don't have to support this person's an- anonymity and still support the anonymity for uh, an eternal whistleblower hotline. So uh, at least right now, I'm kind of on on that uh, tipping point that uh, the political in the political realm, uh, the need for anonymity is not the same as in the uh, corporate world. And that uh, while we support anonymity in the corporate world, largely to prevent retaliation in this in the political world, uh, there are other considerations that are perhaps more important or greater that would uh, move us beyond that. I think that that's a very valid point to raise, and you know, the political world operates based on a different set of values and ethical expectations than the corporate world. And uh, on the other hand, whoever this person is, if they're a cabinet-level secretary, like, really, are you going to be unemployed and jobless um, if you disclose this? I mean, I have no doubt the president would fire the person, but you know, if you're a secretary of something or other, like, so what? You're going to be the powerlessness. And victimization ability that you might see in the corporate realm—that's not there for this. Whoever this person is, they're not going to experience that. So, I think all of your points are very valid to raise. Talk about some of our upcoming events. So, if you are interested at all in what I think is one of the top master classes in compliance, I'm going to be putting on a master class, compliance master class in Boston on September 25 and 26. It's going to be hosted by Affiliated Monitors. I link to registration and information uh, in the show notes. I hope you will join me there. We just have a few slots left. So uh, if you're interested in a masterclass, uh, there'll be CLE provided, CPE uh, provided uh, with uh, uh, attendance. I hope you will consider joining us. Also, uh, I am uh, speaking at Converge 18. It's an event in Denver uh, from October 9 to 11. Uh, This has become truly one of the top compliance conferences around. Uh, so we link to information to it in the show notes, and uh, uh, I have been authorized to offer a discount of 50% to any listeners of this podcast you might want to attend. So I link to that uh, or provide the discount code in the show notes as well. So finally, once again, we're in for a heck of a weekend on sports. I hope that you will uh, watch some baseball, watch some football from my end of uh, the spectrum. I hope you'll pull for the Astros. I know the Red Sox are going to need all the help they can. So for Jay Rosen, uh, this is Tom Fox wishing you farewell to the FCPA week that was September 6, 2008, episode 119, the Heading to Boston's edition. Thank you, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA with our special guest, anonymous star Matt Kelly. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at <coughs> jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. And you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I hope you'll join us again next week when we revel in the Astros sweep of the Boston Red Sox and take up the week's top ethics and compliance stories. 
This Week in FCPA, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.